Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined, as ever, by my podcasting partner, live from his parents' basement, it looks to me, Pillar co-founder and editor and parent basement dweller, Ed Condon. Ed, what's doing? You look like you're in your parents' basement. I am, in fact, literally in my parents' basement. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I have graduated to, you know, platinum-level Catholic news reporter. I am literally in my parents' <laughs> basement where so many of our colleagues live. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, boy. Wowie zowie. Mom, make me a sandwich. Exactly. I, you know, I, I feel ready. I suddenly have much stronger opinions about popes of various kinds. I, oh, no. you know, I... All right, we are. We have too much to talk. I'd love to keep talking about that, but we have too much to talk about. We've got to be talking because Ed, this is a very, very packed podcast. There's a lot to talk about. Probably a lot we're not even going to get to talk about, but we got to get started. And um, Ed, this back half of the show, we're going to talk about the USCCB because next week the U.S. bishops will be meeting in Baltimore, Maryland, for the fall plenary assembly. You could tell that I'm excited. This is I. Love the fall meeting, you know that, and uh, not because I think everything that happens at the fall meeting is great, but just because it is the pin- the sort of I pay a lot of attention to the bishops' conference, and this is the sort of uh, pinnacle moment of the conference's annual um, fadoodlings, and so I'm very excited about that to cover. But uh, before we can talk about that, Ed, there's a couple things that we have to talk about, not on Shores Domestic, but on Shores Foreign. You were just on a reporting trip. We're going to talk about why you were on a reporting trip and what you reported and, and, all, and what we reported and all of that. But I think the only way to start this uh, episode of the podcast is to start with a conversation about Cardinal Jean-Pierre Ricard. Yeah. So Cardinal Ricard or Richard? Richard? Probably, yeah. Probably Richard, uh, former president of the French Bishops' Conference. Retired uh, Archbishop of Bordeaux. And 26-year member of the congregation now dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. I don't think that – I think he was appointed to the the congregation for the doctrine of the faith in 2006. So that would make him a 16-year member of the CDF. Yeah, 16-year member of the CDF, yeah. Yeah, um, fessed up uh, in recent days to having effectively sexually abused a teenage girl uh, in the 1980s, I believe, when he was a parish pastor in Toulouse. He made this declaration seemingly sua sponte, uh, and said that he recognized by letter this, this week at the, the the French bishops were having their bishops conference meeting this week um, in Lourdes, and um, he had the president of the French bishops conference effectively read a letter from him in which he said that he had engaged in reprehensible acts with a fourteen year old thirty five years ago. Yes, and he said that he had spoken to this person since he had made it clear that he has surely done this individual lasting harm and damage, um, that he recognized and repented of his behavior, and he said that he you know, effectively should be held to the same standards of accountability as any other cleric in all of this, and basically put himself at the mercy of whatever processes will, will ensue. Um, this is extremely troubling. For I mean any number of reasons. I mean, there's obviously the the immediate tragedy of the individual involved. Uh, there is what this says about a, someone who has done this in the past was able to rise to such a p- place of prominence in the French Church that he was president of the bishops' conference. He was a cardinal. He is a cardinal archbishop, and you know was effectively the the leader of the church in that country. And even I mean, not even more troubling me. It's, it's difficult to to grade the ways in which this is bad. But I mean, for the universal church, 
Uh, this is particularly grim news because, of course, he has been a member of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith for so many years, this being the Roman Dicastery, which handles ex- with exclusive competence cases of sexual abuse of minors by clergy. So he was effectively on the judges panel judging other clerics for crimes he had himself committed. For appeals. appeals, uh, uh, Certain kinds of appeals go to Ferry Quarta, and the rules have changed about which kind of appeals go to the sort of meeting of the members of the CDF during the time in which he has been on. But to be sure, he has had a, a deliberative voice in the adjudication of certain, el- certain elements of um, clerical sexual abuse cases in the church while holding this secret of having committed some act of abuse. It, it's... I mean, mind-boggling. It's, it's mind-boggling. It is. Of, I mean, we're, it's mind-boggling where we're not here. We're here where we are. It is both mind-boggling and I think for many people, um, no surprise, many people have reacted with sort of cynicism or discouragement, but it is uh, uh, the, taken on its face. It is certainly something. I, I would have counted myself unshockable, unshockable at this point when, when it comes to clerical scandals of one kind or another because of what we've had to live through in the last 20 years, but finding out that a cardinal was sitting on the DDF for 16 years with this secret in his heart. I, I, I would have thought I was unshockable, but I, it turns out I was wrong. I, I can still be shocked. Um, go figure. So here's the deal. Here's what's kind of going on now. Uh, what's going on now is that, so what the Cardinal can confess to was what he called reprehensible acts against this 14 year old girl. And the, the reason he confessed, it's a little bit, uh, it's a, there are certain elements of it that are a little bit unclear, but what we know is that um, his victim had uh, on uh, on several previous occasions raised allegations against the cardinal. Um, five years ago, she wrote a letter uh, to the Holy See, addressed to the Pope, but sent to the Holy See, to which she did not receive a response. Then um, she wrote a letter to the Apostolic Nuncio last year. She had written a letter to the Bishop of Nice. And the reason she had written some of those letters, I think, especially to the Bishop of Nice, is because last year the cardinal, who has retired from his diocese, uh, was put in charge of a kind of uh, French uh, ecclesial community, a small kind of movement in France in which there were um, abuse allegations connected to the founder. And so the cardinal was made effectively the custodian of the thing, and, and, and the victim thought this was reprehensible, and so she made a complaint. Um, the president of the French Bishops' Conference found out about it. He said that he wanted to talk to the victim, and he wanted to um, talk to Cardinal Richard before he made a report. In this country, if a mandatory reporter finds out about abuse, e- even if the victim does not wish for the mandatory reporter to report, they, they have to report. Um, it is not clear to me whether that is true in France or not. I consulted like a half a dozen canonists yesterday to say, what do you think? This there's There's not an explicit norm about this, but what do you think is a bishop canonically bound uh, not to report if um, if a victim or an alleged victim makes an allegation against uh, against a cleric and asks that it not be reported. And the general consensus was that, uh, in fact, the universal consensus among the canonists I consulted was that, uh, no, the bishop cannot be sort of absolved of his responsibility to make canonical reporting because the victim asked him to, save for the case of, um, of, of something which manifests itself in the, in the sacrament of confession. So there are questions about other bishops and how they handled this, both civilly and ecclesiastically. We know that the, a French prosecutor is now investigating uh, the cardinal for what's called aggravated sexual assault. It seems that the statute of limitations has expired, but again, we don't know the precise nature of the crime, so there's still some ambiguity there. The French prosecutor's office has described the alleged abuse as an embrace, which is a word that can mean a kiss or an embrace or 
be a euphemism for something broader. And so, again, because it can be used both precisely to mean something and euphemistically, we don't know how it's meant or what it's meant. So there's a lot that's not known. But for French Catholics, Ed, this is um, this is their McCarrick moment. Um, you know, th- there was a, another scandal that arose uh, just last month, actually, with a with a French bishop who resigned, who who was allowed to resign for health reasons in 2021, even while he was being accused of um, seriously sexually abusing young men in the context of, of of confession, which is like a a couple of serious canonical crimes all sort of compiled into one. Um, he was allowed to resign for health reasons, even while the Vatican was already investigating this stuff. And and my, I was surprised by the initial reaction of many Catholics in France to that, even the media, because they were not immediately asking the kinds of hard questions we've become accustomed to asking here in the United States. But this second thing, this Cardinal Richard thing, and the revelation that, in fact, 11 French bishops have been, have been or are being investigated for abuse or cover-up in recent years, has, I think, become the McCarrick moment of the Church in France which was already small to begin with, already a very small number of Catholics practicing. And this is a huge, huge blow to the Catholics in that country. It absolutely is. And on top of that, the thing that leapt to my mind when I first read about Cardinal Richard is that this is all following very hot on the heels, you know, in in sort of the grand scheme of things, of of the effectively forced resignation of the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris last year, who, as near as I can tell and remember of it, was was made to resign his office ostensibly because of media reports that he'd had a romantic but non-sexual relationship with an adult woman at the time he was mm-hmm. a priest, which was known to the Vatican when he was made Archbishop of Paris. And so you can you can lose your your position in France for that. Which we don't know the details about. There may well be reasons too, but we don't know the details about that. Well, we we quite a lot of the details came out at the time. I mean, there was, you know, um, the Archbishop was pretty forthcoming uh, when it all happened, as as was the you know the, the clergy of his archdiocese about what was known and what yeah, was not. Fair. And again, there was in that case, it was it was fairly well established. I think that this was a romantic but non sexual attachment to an adult woman that he had known prior prior to his even being not even just a bishop but a cleric like he mm-hmm. you know the previous archbishop of paris was a practicing doctor before he you know found his vocation later in life and everything and and so i think to to be in the situation of french catholics now which is that's a hanging offense but there you know there appears to be as you say a mccarrick moment going on where you not only have all of these bishops being investigated for crimes of sexual abuse, but also cover up. I mean, you know, the, again, how many bishops exactly were aware of the allegations against Cardinal Richard over the years and d- don't appear to have done all that much um, is, is harrowing. I mean, it makes you wonder. I mean, I would be tempted at this point to say what we are seeing. And I mean, again, this is this is just a picture of France. Next door in Germany, we, we are seeing much the same thing unfolding. We are seeing, you know, all of these independent reports into historical handling of abuse cases in German dioceses coming out, although no bishops there seem to be able to successfully resign as a result of that. You know, Europe seems to be having um, a McCarrick moment. The the Italian bishops' conference are having some troubles over this. Uh, so, so too are the Spanish bishops, for that matter. You know, it, one would be tempted to think that now would be a good time for the Holy Father to call a sort of global summit of the world's bishops to discuss the problem of Episcopal accountability in the face of the abuse crisis. But the problem is we've already done that. We did that in 2019. And yet here we are three years later, and things seem to be getting worse, not better. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is both a crisis in France and a global crisis, as you say. It, it is not among a lot of Catholics, I think, among a lot of our listeners in the United States, it has attracted attention. Certainly, it has not attracted the sort of broad attention that McCarrick attracted in the United States, where this was the kind of thing that every Catholic and many people who are not Catholic knew about and were paying attention to, and it was leading headlines and those kinds of things. But for people who are paying attention to the life of the church, the involvement, I mean, that this bishop, I mean, if you think about it, this cardinal was on the CDF while the McCarrick situation was being adjudicated. Yes. At the CDF. Yes. And many others. And, you know, there are reasonable questions, I suppose, to ask about whether there are people who might have known about the cardinal's misdeeds and that might have impacted his voting or something like that. But I think the more more acute questions or the more probably likely situation is just in what way did this profound crime on his part impact the way he thinks about these things and the way he might have voted on them? Now, sources in the CDF tell me that the cardinal has not been sort of an active, you know, like when things like this come out for discussion at Ferry Court, the cardinal is not sort of like a very active part of the conversation and all of that. And, you know, it's not on the task forces that were kind of considering individual appeals sort of to prepare the CDF and all of that. But that's that's nevertheless, the man has a liberative vote, right? It's Yeah. It's, it's no less serious because the guy was sort of not – It doesn't um, become okay because he – you know, well, it's not like he was bossing the conversation when we were discussing all of this. It's like that doesn't make it better. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. That's right. So, um, so what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is um, we don't know what's going to happen with the civil situation. My guess would be that because he's under civil investigation, a criminal investigation in France, the church won't do anything until such time as that's adjudicated. He, um, he is uh, said he has taken to a kind of period of prayer and solitude or something like that. But he has faculties. I mean, he's a cardinal member of the College of Cardinals of the Church. He has faculties and he's a member and of how the dicastery. He? And he's a papal elector. Uh, he's 78, so he's a papal elector. Yeah, he's, um, he's eligible for the next conclave. I yeah, mean... he has not resigned the duties and rights of a cardinal, even while admitting it. So the thing to, to make clear is these are not allegations. This is an admission. Now, an admission of what is not resolved um, he has acknowledged that what he did had a profound and lasting effect on his victim. What precisely that is is not resolved. Truth be told, though, if he were going to minimize it in some way or try to minimize it or attempt to say, you know, I made a boundary violation, which was not a canonical crime, he's had a very, very unusual way of going about it, right? If that were the, if, if he did not think what he did was a canonical crime, it seems to me he would not sort of open with, I did something reprehensible, I'm going into hiding and I can't say anything more about it. Um, because I think that, you know, it would be very impossible for people to believe that there's not more to the story if later he says, oh, no, 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 I meant I just, you know, gave her a hug that was uh, too long or something. No, I mean, this was, you do not make an admission like this if there's not something to to admit that is substantial. That's right. And even if we're not talking about something that fits into the, you know, the sort of carefully defined box of sexual abuse of a minor according to the the law in place. That was in place at the time. Yeah. That was in place at the time. I mean, morally, it doesn't matter. If you find right. yourself in a position where you can confess to reprehensible behavior against a 14-year-old that has caused them lasting damage, and you're still a sitting member of the College of Cardinals and eligible to vote in a conclave, that strikes me as the sort of thing the church ought to address with some urgency. It's a scandal. It's an absolute scandal. It's an absolute well, scandal. Well, Theodore McCarrick was out of the College of Cardinals right. like faster than you could say boo once the once the allegations were against him were out. Yeah. 
So the French, some French bishops have visited the Holy See to talk about this and the case of Bishop Santier. The I'm, I don't pronounce French names right, but the one the one who um, was allowed to resign, even while he was under investigation for effectively abusing the sacrament of penance in order to do this weird psychosexual spiritual abuse of young men, uh, and then was subsequently sanctioned for it. So the Holy See actually sanctioned him last October. In some way, I, I don't think the sanctions were manifested, but in some way the Holy See actually sanctioned him, but this was this did not come out until French media reported it. So there is. So what are the themes here? Um, in that case, the theme is, uh, um, among other things, you know, who knew, who might have facilitated, who might have enabled, why did the guy continue to act in ministry, having this in his background for his own integrity? What accountability is there? What transparency is there in justice? It's another case where there is a lack of transparency in justice. The guy was actually punished in some way, presumably the conferral of a penal sanction, um, and the Holy See did not manifest that. We've talked a lot about justice in secret is not justice. And then the integrity, I think the honest to goodness, the themes here have to do with the integrity of the adjudication of cases while Cardinal Richard was on the CDF. I think, you know, one would hope there would be a kind of contact tracing of those cases to find out if there are any uh, any issues. Um, I think many people might say that that's an overreaction and he was only one vote and all of those things. But it seems as a matter of credibility, there would have to be some kind of reexamination of those cases in which he was um, involved. But, at but the we'll never time, know because, of course, the other great problem, you know, talking about transparency of justice in cases like this, the one thing canonists have been screaming about for two decades now is – if you were a canon lawyer, and I have been, trying to um, participate as an advocate, either a prosecutor or a defense attorney, in, in any of these cases, you have to fly blind effectively because yeah. there is no published jurisprudence from any of them. Mm-hmm. We we simply don't know how these cases – I mean, the only way you can get to know how one of these cases is resolved, how it is argued, how the judges think, how the judges apply the law, is if you do one and you get the final – case in the mail, which, by the way, even though in 2019, Pope Francis lifted the pontifical secret um, on cases related to this, um, these sorts of crimes, the CDF, now DDF, um, you still get the mail stamped sub secreto pontificio. So, I mean, that, that's a whole other thing is, you know, you would be, as you say, it'd be nice to do a sort of contact tracing of, you know, examining, is there any way that, you know, the, the cases could have, you know, had their decisions revisited or would they need to be reexamined in the light of Cardinal Richard's participation in them? But again, we'll never know which cases those were. So it's not even like we can call for it or, or there could be any public accountability um, if, they, if they had that intention. Yeah, the, there's no way around it. This is a very serious blow to the church's claims to have begun reforming the administration of justice on matters of uh, clerical abuse and misconduct. Now, on the one hand, especially at the Episcopal level, on the one hand, it came out. I mean, there are people who would say hey, it came out. Um, and that is a kind of a uh, kind of moving forward, but it's it's an insufficient moving forward if the coming out doesn't doesn't lead to real answers. And you know, I I think the obvious necessary reform of governance in the life of the church now is this. And yeah. um, there has not been, you know, the Holy Father on the plane last week coming back from Bahrain. Um, said, well, you know, we're working on it and we're trying to make things transparent. In some cases, they're complicated and, you know, we're all sinners and we have to, of course, we can't tolerate this stuff, but we're working on it and we have to keep keep at it. And it was, there was not a sense of, that's my summary, um, there was not a sense of urgency about these things. Of course, that was right before um, some of these things, but not all of them came out. Um, 
but uh, they're they're clearly. I mean, from my there clearly needs to be a sense of urgency. It's just, um, and this is not. This does not touch on governance. Is critically important to the life of the church, to people's trust in the church and her claims uh, regarding the reality of the transcendent. Um, governance is related to orders, as we've talked about many times. You know, a person is qualified for for the exercise of governance of certain kinds of governance because of their ordination, but the exercise of governance, this is these are not things that are the administration of justice in the life of the church is not protected by the charisms of the Holy Spirit with regard to the inerrant you know infallibility of the Pope or indefectibility of the church with regard to doctrinal teaching. The church can be very good at governance or very bad at governance. And there are periods in the history of the of, of the West in which the church is the best at governance, in which the church's law is a sort of sterling example of good administration of justice from which other societies can learn and which other societies can really take as a model. The, the church has periods in which she has been an exemplar of the administration of justice. Um, this is not one of them. No, no, it is not. And I mean, I, I don't know. You, you stop me if, if you're ready to move on in terms of topics, because this is what I'm about to say could, could easily turn into what we talk about for the rest of the show. So yes. if, if that's not how, what you want to happen, cut me off. But I, I think that is true. I think it's also I'm important. Not, I don't have my soundboard today, so I can't use the sound effects. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> no, I, it strikes me that, and this is something I was talking about with some friends in Rome this week, is that you know we we can talk about a crisis of confidence in government, and we can talk about a crisis of governance uh, in the mechanisms of governance in the church right now, and we can talk about how, for example, there seems to be a, a real problem with the way legislation is dealt with in the church right now and the way legislation is applied, and we've talked about this in the show a lot, you know, the sort of asymmetrical application of the law to priests versus bishops in in different circumstances, uh, sometimes where it looks like, you know, no law at all is applied and someone is just asked to quietly resign. When there is a process, the the clear preference for a sort of administrative accelerated process, not a judicial process, not a recognizable trial where things like the right of defense and the right of discovery and all that stuff uh, is honored. And, uh, you know, what I was talking about with these people was they said, you know, well, this isn't new. This has been a long time in coming. We are, you know, we've been building towards this. And, you know, you can very well argue that we start, you know, this is all Gaspari's fault. Um, that you know, when we when the church elected to go for a codified system, when the church said, "No, you know what? We have had more than a millennia. We have had nearly two millennia of um, being the the custodians of the Roman legal tradition, of Roman law, of of all that that entails." And then we're going to shift to the Napoleonic Code as the model that we are going to have in the church. We're going to have a single unified code of law. And going from there, that that you know that's that signal you know that's a lot comes with that. Having a codified legal system doesn't just mean that you have a book of laws, and that's where you can. It's not just a question of reference material. Um, there is a preference in that in a codified system for administrative law rather than judicial means of adjudicating cases. That there's an entire legal legal culture that comes along with that, and the church shifted her legal culture, starting with the development of and promulgation of the 1917 code through the middle of the 20th century and through to the promulgation of the 83 code. Yeah, I don't want to take that. I, I'd love to talk about <laughs> that, but I don't want to make it the rest of the show because I don't know that. I, I'm, I think what can be said about that is that um, – Law, law is uh, 
there are structural, yeah, there are real structural questions about the way in which the church promulgates her law and the implications of that. But at the end of the day, perhaps you disagree with me, but it seems to me that we have we have the legal mechanisms by which good governance on these matters could be assured in the life of the church. Sure. They depend upon the disposition, the respect for the law of the, of the, of those in positions of, um, of governance, the respect for persons and their dignity and awareness of the way in which uh, lapses in the, or failures in the execution of the law is an affront to the dignity of per, of real living persons and their souls. Um, and a commitment to use the law to its fullest. Like there, there. I think there are interesting systemic questions about kind of which legal system is best. But we, it's not that we don't have what we need for the execution of justice. Sure. No, I would agree with that. It's the church has never. I mean, I said this, and I have said this before. Um, you know, even in the sort of uh, immediate first round of scandals in the early two thousands, which gave us the Dallas Charter, the USCCB essential norms, and all of that. And then bled into a reform of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, which is the DDF's proper law for handling, you know, the most serious crimes in the church and all that stuff. But what the church had in the sort of worst years of the sexual abuse crisis um, in the United States in the 70s and early 80s, the church never lacked law. The church never lacked process. Right. The, what the church lacked was a legal culture that respected those things. Yeah. Okay, we do have to stop talking about this because we have other legal things to talk about, and then we need to talk about the conference. Um, you are being so, extraordinarily disciplined. I thought if I dangled that pinata in front of you, that would be <laughs> it. I was like, come on. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to be extraordinarily I know, disciplined. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm giving you a compliment. I'm saying this is excellent <laughs> podcast hosting you're doing. You're not taking the hey, bait. Well done. It is, as I used to say on another show, um, my damn desk, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen. Um, uh, I, I'd like to have that conversation. Um, perhaps we can even have it at our live show uh, in Baltimore, which I hope that our listeners will attend. Listen, the live show next week is going to be really fun. Uh, we're having a live a taping of an episode of the Pillar Podcast on uh, Wednesday, the sixteenth of November at seven p.m. at a bar in Baltimore called Todd Connors Bar. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yes, Todd Connors. We have actually secured. The whole of Todd Connor's bar. It's a great bar. It's not very far from where the U.S. bishops meet. We have secured the whole of the bar. All kinds of fun stuff is going to be happening, which is to say we're going to be recording the podcast and having drinks. But uh, that's all kinds of fun stuff in our in our mind. There's a little back room in which we'll record the show. There's a bar part of the bar. We really hope if you're a friend of the pillar, you'll come. Uh, if you're not a friend of the pillar, you know, don't come. Don't come. But uh, yeah, but if you are a friend of the pillar, we really hope you'll come because it'll be fun, and uh, and and maybe we'll be able to get into it there. But uh, right now, we're going to have to talk about the conference after the break. So I just want to talk for like five to seven minutes about the latest development in Vatican finance stuff. Another area where that touches upon, of course, the rule of law, and in this case, we're having an actual trial related to alleged crimes, serious financial crimes involving. A cardinal, a Vatican curial department, numerous mid-level officials in the Holy See, uh, a woman um, contracted to spy. <laughs> I almost was. I almost did it. Almost did it without breaking. A woman contracted to spy on cardinals and curial officials on behalf of another cardinal and paid. So she claims. Uh, so she claims, uh, as does the prosecutor, and 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 paid in um, all kinds of bank transfers, most of which seems to have gone for the purchase of luxury handbags. There's lots going on in that trial, but Ed, you broke the news or covered the news no. of a 
No, you yeah. didn't. You didn't. You and a number of other outlets, we and another number of other outlets reported at the same time this week um, that the former Auditor General of the Roman Curia, the first Auditor General of the Roman Curia, the guy who was supposed to look at the books, appointed in 2015 to look at the books everywhere uh, to kind of get them in order and make sure that uh, all the columns were adding up to what they're supposed to add up to, um, filed suit uh, against the Secretary of State. This week, um, claiming that he was wrongfully terminated and uh, a whole host of other things, too. What's doing? Uh, okay. So, as you said, we we don't want this to be the center of the show because I could talk about this for hours. So I will nutshell this for everyone very, very quickly. You're going to talk about it for Mal- five to seven minutes. I'm, I've got yeah. a clock going. Okay. So, Libero Maloney, who was the first Auditor General of the Holy See, so he had the entirety of the Roman Curia as well as the Vatican City State under his purview. And his job was basically to get the books in shape and to keep them in shape for an external audit to be conducted by, in this case, PricewaterhouseCoopers. That audit never happened. And Maloney himself in 2017 was forced to resign. Um, He was forced to resign under threat of prosecution. He was confronted by the promoters of justice for a Vatican City state, Cardinal Angelo Becci, who who was at the time an archbishop and the substitute of the Secretary of State, um, who presented him with basically... (laughs) A criminal indictment, effectively, saying, we will prosecute you on the strength of a seven-month investigation into you, um, conducted by the Vatican gendarmes, the Vatican City State's police force. Uh, And we believe you have exceeded your mandate. You have been spying on the private financial affairs of senior curial officials, including Cardinal Betchew. And you no longer enjoy the confidence of the Pope. You can resign now and leave, or we will prosecute you. And um, Libero Maloney has not been... Uh, very public since all of this went down. He's kept a fairly low profile. And this week he had a press conference uh, in uh, in the offices of his lawyers in Rome, which I was at along with another a number of other journalists. And he basically, over a series of hours, laid out his narrative of what happened, which is pretty incredible reading. Or I didn't find it incredible. In fact, I found it all too believable because I've, you know, I, I have been... Uh, obsessively, even fetishistically concerned with this story since Maloney's most departure in 2017. Almost all of it you knew walking in. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I learned very little that was new apart from a few interesting details. Uh, but it, it, to, to have Maloney finally ready to say all of this out loud was, was quite remarkable. And he offered some details of what he had found. He said, for example, that the then head of the Vatican gendarmes, Domenico Gianni, he said he had basically uncovered a situation where he had used the official funds of the of the gendarmes to pay for his own apartment renovations of his apartment that he was supposed to yeah. pay, like two hundred fifty thousand euro or something like that, right? One hundred seventy thousand. Like, yeah, he just yeah. basically said, "I'll, I'll, I'll have the, I'll have the police force write the check for that because you know I, I've got." short hands and deep pockets you know I, I and this was just you know one of he says he's got dozens of examples he's got a, he's got examples of a cardinal whom he found basically just pocketing you know a half a million euros just trousering it and walking off and he found it and you know he said i made reports of it all this to the pope and i showed the pope and the pope said go get the money back and you know hit went through the roof and all of this and maloney's conclusion with which it is hard on the strength of what he said to disagree is that he was basically fired for quote-unquote spying, but other people, including him, would consider just quote-unquote normal auditing work, um, that he he was just not allowed to do this sort of thing. Like you, This is this is way too much of, of the auditings. Like, we don't want this. You know, you're, gonna, you're gone, and you're going to get gone, and you're going to go quietly. And 
um, very, you know, I mean, Maloney since 2017, it was very forthcoming. He said, I haven't been able to work because, you know, Ike, he's a very, you know, he didn't come to the Vatican out of nowhere. He was a very senior executive at Deloitte for a number of years. He's worked at companies all over the world. He's, you know, he's, he was a real deal when the Vatican hired him in 2015. And he said, you know, anyone Googles my name and all it is is scandal and allegation and I can't clear my name. And he said he spent the last several years since his firing trying to get a settlement out of the Vatican, trying to say, first of all, pay me what I'm owed because you terminated my contract three years early, effectively, and clear my name. And, you know, let's, you know, get all of this done. And they pushed him off and pushed him off. And he said, basically, I've got no choice now. I have to sue for wrongful dismissal because there's just no other way for me to be able to get back to work. Well, he's he's not the only plaintiff, right? I mean, can you just talk he's about the He's not the only plaintiff. His, his deputy, and this is actually a lot more tragic, the man who served as his deputy at the auditor's office, um, at the time he was dismissed, which was the same day as Maloney, he was undergoing uh, aggressive screening for heightened PSA levels at a Vatican City doctor. And when they seized the offices of both Maloney and his deputy and took all their files, all of his medical records were in that office, and he still hasn't had them back. And basically, he had to then find another urologist, start the process all and over those again. those medical records indicated that he had elevated PSA, which is a marker for prostate cancer, and he underwent some additional tests related to the diagnosis of prostate cancer. Is that right? Like, maybe he might have had stage zero prostate cancer at that point. Is that right? Yes. Basically, and this is what he said at the press conference. He said, um, I, I was about to start, you know, I, I was doing all these tests and everything and everyone was very hopeful. It was great. And then he basically lost months and had to restart the whole cycle all over again with a different doctor without his medical records and everything else. And now he has stage four prostate cancer. And it is his and opinion. He basically and the, said if it had been diagnosed, I mean, it's his claim, but he basically said yeah. if it had been diagnosed based upon those initial tests, I would have been, it would have been caught months earlier. And, and prostate cancer is um, the kind of thing which is. Highly survivable with early detection and um, easily spread with late detection. Exactly. So that's an even Which, more. Which, by the way, fellas, you know, yeah. head on over to that doctor. You know, yeah, bite the bullet. Uh, that's that's an even more you know personally tragic rather than professionally tragic circumstance yeah, surrounding terrible. all of this. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. Um, but what's what's fascinating about what will happen next is this. So one of the things that Maloney has been asking for for several years is saying. Give, you know, declassify the police report, the Vatican police report that led to the indictment that I was presented with, that right. forced me to resign. So we can clear all of this up and I can have my good name back. And apparently that case, that investigation was placed under the pontifical secret and, you know, legally put in the deep freeze, neither alive nor dead, just in, in stasis. And, you know, this hasn't happened. And he said, and finally, when he said, okay, I'm I'm suing. I'm filing my lawsuit in the tribunal of the Vatican City State. All of a sudden, the pontifical secret was lifted. But instead of that leading to Maloney, for example, being consulted as a witness for the ongoing Vatican financial crimes trial, the prosecutors in Vatican City State appear to have reopened the investigation into him. They've assigned it a new protocol number. And he went in for what he thought was right. going to be a clear the air conversation. And they said, oh, no, we think we would like you to answer for all of this, please. And yeah. we're effectively restarting the investigation, which is just mind boggling. But uh, so where, where all this is going, who knows? Maloney says that although um, when he was fired, they seized obviously his office, they padlocked his office, they took everything. We said, you know, I... I work from home a lot of the time, just like everybody else. I have documents. I have plenty of documents. I can prove what I am saying. And if this and in goes so doing, to, he would prove widespread financial corruption among at least a set of curio cardinals and, Gian and entire Vatican, Vatican departments, he alleges. Um, and 
you know, I there's two ways of looking. First of all, I, he doesn't strike me as a man who's bluffing, um, mm-hmm. but he does strike me as a man who is daring the Vatican to call his bluff because he's saying, I'm not naming too many names and I'm not producing the evidence I have now. Um, I will produce that in court when we get there. And I think this is a sort of public last ditch bid to get the Vatican to give him what he considers to be uh, his justice rather than face the prospect of open court at which he will presumably present all of the stuff he says he has, that this is a sort of final warning, if you like. Now, whether or not the Vatican will take that offer remains to be seen, although if if the promoter of justice has basically reopened the criminal investigation into him, that doesn't seem to be likely. Um, Yeah, but you know, okay, so I understand the set of claims which Maloney has made here. We, We do only have one side of the story. I mean, it's plausible that indeed he did exceed his mandate in certain ways, right? I mean, is it is it in completely implausible in your mind? It do, it seems to me like much of what he's accused of doing is indeed his job, but um, is it at least plausible that he had in fact exceeded his mandate in certain ways, or in fact, it seems unlikely because was- what we have heard from, for example, Cardinal Betchew, uh, who has frequently referenced Maloney in his in Betchew's evidence to his trial in the Vatican and in public following Maloney's uh, firing. The the stuff that has been alleged against Maloney, uh, in some cases, has been what would seem to fall under the mandate of the Auditor General, as published on the Office of the Auditor General and the sort of Vatican Governor, you know, statutes. Like it's there. That's public mm-hmm. law. What his remit is, and what he's supposed to look at. And it's hard to see a discrepancy there. Other things appear to be, uh, have clearly appeared to be have falsely alleged against him. For example, Cardinal Betchew has maintained for several years and still maintains as of this week, that it was never uh, within the competence of the office of the Auditor General to examine the Secretary of State. Now, Maloney produced at his press conference documents that were his original mandate from the Holy See saying, here's what the Auditor General does, here's who you look into. And on one of them was like, number one, the Secretary of State, including Peters Pence, you know. (laughs) So, uh I mean, is it possible? Sure, anything's possible. Until you have absolutely everything everywhere from everyone, you can't say for sure. But on the strength of who's producing documents now and who is making the case that makes the most sense in the light of what we know and what we have learned over the last, gosh, seven years of the Vatican financial, this cycle of Vatican financial scandal, it's it's not looking likely that Maloney is bluffing. Although, yeah. again, you know, as I said, until we see everything from everyone from everywhere, we won't know. But yeah. that that's not the way it appears to be trending at the moment. Fair enough. Okay, Ed, you great job. Thank you. <laughs> I know there's going to be more Maloney uh, reporting coming. There will uh, be a probably, lot of Maloney baloney from me. Probably in the next after few the conference. I mean, probably after the conference because we're going to be pretty busy next week. But. Uh, mm. <laughs> Maloney's meeting with Vatican prosecutors on oh, Monday. That's right. So that's right. Maloney has an important I, meeting with I Vatican prosecutors on Monday, and I bet there will be yeah. some talk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ed, we will be right back to talk about the U.S. bishops and their conferring uh, after a word from our sponsor. 
Listeners, have you ever wondered what diocese you're in, what bishop you're subject to, whose name should be mentioned in the liturgy? If so, you should check out diocese.in. That's diocese.in. It's the website for you. If you're traveling and you're looking for the right Episcopal name to mention in the Eucharistic prayer or the Liturgy of the Hours in English or in Latin, or you're just plain curious about who your local successor to the Apostles is, head to diocese.in. That's diocese.in. From anywhere in the United States, you can see what diocese of the Latin Catholic Church you are in right now. I mean, how cool does this sound? Seriously, guys, I think this is really, really cool. Diocese.in is a website that uses, I don't know, the magic of internet tubes to know what you're doing and to tell you what name you should say in the Eucharistic prayer or the Liturgy of the Hours, what norms you're subject to. I mean, just who doesn't want to know what jurisdiction they're in and what particular law is relevant to them? And the place to start for that is honestly, I honestly think Diocese.in is a very cool thing. That's Diocese.in. Now back to our show. Ed, welcome back. And uh, but before we get started, I just want to um, say hello to two uh, California listeners who I had the, of the Pillar Podcast, who I had the privilege of meeting a couple of weeks ago. My new friends, Bonnie and Dennis of, um, the, of the Diocese of San Diego. Bonnie and Dennis, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for listening to the Pillar Podcast. You guys are all right. Bonnie and Dennis, everybody. They're all right. I, I also hi to them. Um, I didn't get to meet them. <laughs> also, hi to them. Uh, I I had there you're were a co- lot of... you're coattailing my Bonnie and Dennis. No, I was going to say there were. I would like to also for if, if we're doing shout outs, I I would like to say hello to all. Oh, of the I don't want to. I just I just don't want to use the word shout out. I mean, gosh, you have to. I'm sorry. If you're going to do <laughs> no, it, you're I can't do it. it. I can't do it. I cannot yeah, say shout out. Own what you have become, JD. Just, <laughs> just deal with it. Be who you are. As they say. Be what we. Are. I'm in my parents' when people basement tell you who they are. Listen to them. Yeah, I'm in my <laughs> parents' basement dude. recording a podcast, and we're doing shoutouts. All right, this is what I. This is what it's come to. Mom, this... make me a sandwich. <laughs> Uh, I would like to say hello to all the podcast listeners that I met in Rome last week. Although I'm not going to mention their names because they specifically asked me not to. But you know who you are. It was great seeing you. Well, uh, I would also like to say hi to Ed's anonymous friends. <laughs> Much like uh, as Ed podcasts from his parents' basement and tells stories about his podcast friends in Rome and his girlfriend in Canada. We all believe you, there, Edward. <laughs> Bonnie exactly. and Dennis, you're real. Okay, back to it. Ed, uh, we are headed. You you are right now in your parents' basement in New Jersey. Um, you know, and uh, I'm sure texting with all your your real friends over in Rome. Um, <laughs> but you are headed back from New Jersey home in a couple of days. I am headed to the East Coast on uh, Sunday morning because it is time for the fall plenary meeting of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which kicks off on Monday. But it kicks off in a manner to which we are still growing accustomed because the bishops are—this is the first thing I want to talk about. I don't know if we've talked about this much already or not, but the bishops are— um, Beginning their fall plenary meeting with a full like day and a half of uh, of executive session. So, um, you know, it used to be that the bishops would meet for a couple of days. So the the way the conference meeting works is that first the part that's sort of where a lot of stuff is going on is actually happening already. Um, but the first thing is committee meetings. Bishops and consultors and staff members of the USCCB start rolling into Baltimore right, right about now, Friday morning, maybe Thursday, uh, maybe Thursday. Um, to uh, to have meetings of the committees that do a lot of the business of the USCCB or work on things and that kind of thing. The committee meetings happen for a couple of days, and then um, on Monday, you know, you know, and then and then the conference kind of kicks off, has typically kicked off with the opening sessions, some speeches, and that kind of thing, and then gets to the business and that kind of thing. 
and then closes with a day of executive session. And then there, it used to be that it closed with, a, excuse me, a half a day of executive session, a closed door session, followed by an optional sort of day of prayer for the bishops, which some bishops attended, but not very many because people had to get back to their diocese. Maybe they'd already been there for many, many days. The conference decided really last year that they would change that up. There'd been some talk about it before then, but they decided really last year that they would change that up and begin the fall meeting with um, a closed door session that includes both a kind of spiritual half day, I suppose, of prayer, fraternity, and, and you know, preached things, followed by a closed door agenda. So they would do, they would have like a full day and a half of no TV cameras, no reporters, no staff, just executive session uh, at the beginning of the meeting and then a short executive session at the end. And um, this is a big change. Um, the the idea, if you remember last year, the fall meeting, you remember last year, the big controversy at the Bishop's Conference was the Eucharistic Coherence Document. And last year's June meeting, if you pay attention to this kind of stuff, you remember that last year's June meeting was just extremely polemical, um, with bishops being much more open and brazen and straightforward about their disagreement with each other, questioning one another's motives and, and intentions and these kinds of things, uh, making arguments or the facsimiles of argu- thereof about their views on Eucharistic coherence in a very overt and polemical fashion, uh, followed by a kind of um, vote on whether or not the conference should draft the Eucharistic coherence document. There were parliamentary things beforehand, try to get it off the agenda, all that kind of stuff. We, which Ed and, I, and then try to blow up the agenda by saying, well, we're only going to talk about this. Right, exactly. That's right. All kinds of parliamentary issues. So that was the June meeting, and it was... Um, uh, on the one hand, I, I don't want to say it was a low point for the conference, because I don't even think that's true. On the one hand... If you take the position that bishops should have their arguments out in the open and, and Which I do. state their positions very clearly, it was, a, it was a moment of honest to God transparency. Maybe that's what transparency looks like. Bishops don't always agree with each other. Everybody knows it. It's silly to pretend otherwise. And that was a moment in which that was made manifest. But the perception among the conference was that it was not particularly valuable and they didn't want to repeat it in November and it was not particularly productive. And so they had this executive session in which they had an open sort of open mic conversation about the Eucharistic Coherence Document, which was preceded by some other conversations at regional meetings about the Eucharistic Coherence Document. A lot of work was done, but then they had this uh, prayer thing, which was preached by Archbishop Kurtz, and then they had kind of more talk about the Eucharistic Coherence Document, so that by the time they voted on it in November, the, the approval thereof, they had had a lot of conversation about it, and it surprisingly got near unanimous vote. Bishops left, right, center, if there's such a thing, all told me subsequently that, uh, you know, they felt like this time of closed-door conversation was very productive. And I'm not surprised because I have long kind of noticed and lamented that um, unlike the June meeting where people were really saying what they think, oftentimes bishops during the public portion of the meeting, most bishops don't say anything. Many bishops, in fact, already know how they're going to vote on stuff. So they're just kind of looking at their phone during the course of sort of floor debate about various things. And the same whack-a-mole pack of 10 or 12 or 14 bishops stand up frequently to sort of make their voices heard because they're the kind of people who, I guess, like to speak into a microphone or whatever. Um, and so it can be very tedious, actually. The, the TV cameras, on the one hand, deter many bishops, I think, from speaking um, ordinarily, and on the other hand, encourage certain bishops to speak ad nauseum. And so there is a way in which that, I think, can undermine the honest goodness engagement of the conference. So there's this thing where, on the one hand, it's good to see what bishops actually think, and that happens when pu- debates happen in public. On the other hand, it's good for bishops to actually say what they think, and that seems, m- for the most part, only to happen in kind of executive sessions or to happen more frequently in executive sessions. So I don't know, Ed. What, what do you think? I think a couple of things. Um, first of all, I hope you're happy because there's a <laughs> lot 
There's a lot less I didn't open do session this. this time around. No, you didn't do you got you wished it into being. You, I, this well, was your I vision mean, board. Or, I have been saying for a while that the TV cameras fundamentally change the way bishops talk to each other and that that's yes. not a health, I, well, healthy I would thing. agree with the TV. The way they talk part. to each other is not a healthy thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, but television is unhealthy. Television news is bad. I mean, the TV cameras are, are bad generally. Um, so I agree with you that far. But now we have a lot less open session that we can attend, which is a shame. I, I agree with you to the extent that I thought the one-two punch of the of the meetings last year, the June followed by the November, were I thought actually really great at complementing each other, that you had it all out in public, and then they got back together and you know, hashed it out like grownups and produced a document that they all said was very synodal, that, that they all felt heard, they all felt mutually respected and listened to and consulted. And there was consensus even where there wasn't, if there wasn't consensus for everything the document said, there was consensus that yes, this reflects the conference. And that I thought was really great. So I'm, I'm sort of in favor of both and there. I'm not wild about us not being able to report at all about a large swath of what the bishops will talk about, because I don't think that's necessarily good for the bishops. Because if they're going to talk about things, for example, like a survey that was recently published that shows a massive crisis of confidence in the bishops by their own clergy. They should talk about that in public. Because if they don't talk about it in public, it's hardly going to reassure their clergy that they're taking this seriously. Right. Um, I would like to, I I have a modest proposal. And and I suspect I will agree with it unless it involves Jonathan Swift's ideas about modest proposal. No, it's no, I'm not suggesting cannibalism. Um, It is this. I agree with you that cameras fundamentally reward bad behavior and boring contributions and discourage sincerity and speaking from the heart and spontaneity in front. I agree. So get rid of the cameras. The only people who talk, maybe there's a perception sometimes that the only people talk are those who are running for something. Yeah, and often not even them. I mean, there's, well, there's the difference. Those who are running something, which is distinct from those who have been nominated for something. No, I don't even mean... I just mean who are ambitious in certain ways. Oh, I see. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't think it's always true, but yeah. A- anyway, what I would suggest is this is no cameras. You allow press in, some press. Us. press. <laughs> yeah, us. Um, no, I mean some press, to be sure. A, re- a representative press. sample of the press. Indeed, I think you would necessarily involve left, right, and center, and then us, yes. which are just but reporters. You, yeah. you impose the you, – you make us write parliamentary sketches. That You basically impose the Chatham House rule. You can't report who said what. Right. And, you know, we have to develop the parliamentary sketch writing tradition of writing about bishops pseudonymously and putting, you know, a bishop said, you know, a bishop. Well, not even a bishop said, but you have to dress the whole thing up in metaphor and, you know, everything else. So you give the sense of the conversation without actually what was said or by whom. I think that would be fine. And I think that could be a compromise everyone could live with, provided everyone could get used to it. And fun, as I say, provided that there are enough people who could get used to the technique of parliamentary sketch writing, which is glorious. Uh, I, I think that would be a happy via media that, you know, to let the bishops have their conversation in private, knowing that no one is going to, you know, have reported them for having what. an opinion. Yeah. But at the same time, allow what they produced in Baltimore last year, which was so good to emerge and be reported on, which is here is the here's the tone of the conversation. Here's how it evolved. And here's how a consensus was arrived at. I think that would be really helpful. I, I think that is something that the bishops benefit from being out there. And also, I think it's something that just benefits the church in the U.S. in general, that we get a window into not what is said and by whom, but how the bishops talk to one another. That if there, if it's possible to at least perceive through a window darkly, the the tone and, you know, sometimes messy, but authentic 
gestures of fraternity that go on in those conversations, I think that benefits everyone. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I, I, I think you're right about that. It, the, expanding executive sessions may be a good thing, but it can't be the only thing, right? There needs to be – there's precious little made available to the press. And when I say the press, I mean that as a stand-in for – Catholics who are interested in what's happening with the leadership of their church, there's precious little provided to them. I, I don't think that um, minutes of, no, I'm certain actually that minutes of the meetings are not provided to the press, even the public session of the, are provided to the press. It's very often that it's really hard, Ed, you know this, we both know this, to get copies of the documents that bishops are talking about in front of us. You know, it's often the case that bishops are having a conversation that it's very difficult to follow if you don't have documents or you can't get someone to you know, a bishop to share them with you or something like that, which they're not supposed to, because, you know, they're they're not made available. So it's already the case that the conference seems in certain ways to want to have its cake and eat it too, in the sense of wanting to say that the meetings are open to the public without making them fully open to the public. Well, without now anything happening. interesting happening in public. Yeah, without theory. anything interesting happening in public. I mean, that's not universally true. Interesting things still happen. I'm sure interesting things will still happen in this one, but some of the interesting things will happen behind closed doors. But but now all the more, if the bishops want to pursue the goods that are affiliated with executive sessions, and I would encourage them to do so, it does need to be the case, I think, or I hope it will be the case for the sake of good, for the sake of public accountability, first of all, but also, I mean, I, which is, which honest to God matters, but also to address these issues of trust in the sense that priests say that bishops are imperious and consider themselves above the law and don't consider themselves to, and that there's a huge problem with Episcopal accountability in the life of the church. To address those things, I hope that when bishops are talking in their executive session about the future of the conference, the state of the conference, its needs, and the future of the conference, they will raise the point that Catholics really are concerned, clerics and laity alike and religious, are, are really concerned about what's happening. And it can't just be the fact that this is the great closing of the doors, which we loud as a good thing. It may, it may indeed be a good thing, but it's not going to seem that way. And there's going to, there are inevitably going to be things about it that are not good if there are not new and better efforts to communicate what's happening. And, and not just we're going to tell you what happened, but to actually provide some mechanism for people to know independently what's happening. What the bishops are saying now is, hey, we're going to have interesting conversations behind closed doors. Trust us. And Trust us. We won't answer any questions because if you do ask questions at the press conferences and things about this, well, we can't talk about what we talked about in executive yeah, session. Yeah, we so, can't talk about what happened in executive session. Or, or we'll, if you ask the wrong kind of questions, maybe we'll blackball you from asking questions in the future. I don't know. But the point is, trust us is not, I want Catholics to trust bishops. I, I want it. I love the church, Ed. I, I love the church. I want Catholics to trust bishops. Yes. But bishops have to do some of the things. It's like your marriage. You have to do the things that make it possible for your spouse to trust you, especially well, if so your, your spouse has been burned. Th- th- yes. So there is that question of earned credibility that is unfortunately facing the bishops in this country. But I, I would say also it's it's good. Even if that weren't the case, even if yeah. the bishops had all the trust in the world and we hadn't had you know, decades of scandal and problems with accountability and transparency, I would still say it's not healthy for the dynamic of the church in this country to say, well, the bishops only talk frankly and with meaning amongst themselves in private. Because that doesn't, you know, it, again, you said it's the same as a marriage, it's the same as a family. Like If the parents only talk about the stuff that matters and speak to each other as humans away from the kids, then the kids have no pattern of 
human relationship to follow. Yeah. You know, you, you need to see mom and dad fight and reconcile sometimes. That's how kids learn to do it. And, and I get it because I really hate fighting in front of my kids. I hate it because I, what happens is I get afraid that if I if we fight in front of them, we're going to them up. And, and so much so that I don't ultimately respect sort of their – now, you can't just, I mean, like, you know, go nuts in front of your kids. I mean, there's – you have to treat – No, but that's part of it is respect, that you, right? you is also it, model healthy conflict. You model healthy conflict. And if you don't have healthy conflict, if the point that you're recognizing is we don't have healthy conflict, that should be a sign that you need to address that. And I think, honest to goodness, I honestly think we're going to have more conversations quietly is an attempt which has some real benefits to address. We don't have healthy conflict, which they don't, but I, I it can't be everything because yeah. if all, actually, if, if all your parents do when they're going to fight, if they fight a lot and all they do when they're going to fight is like go upstairs or out on the front porch, you live in a kind of, the kind of fear of unknowing that is not healthy for yeah. anybody and you don't learn healthy conflict and all that other stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, declaring my own interest in this, I've always wanted to be a parliamentary sketch writer. So I mean, <laughs> that is manifestly clear. I definitely want to be, I love be, I I well I like being in the room where it happens to be sure, um, but uh, you know that's not. There's also some public goods in there. The other thing that's changed. There's a lot that's changed, and and, and I didn't know we were going to talk about that quite so much. But another thing which has changed is that, uh, and we'll, I'll be interested to see how it works. Is that the conference has done away with press conferences to replace them with media scrums, which are to be impromptu gatherings of principal figures, like sort of at various points that resemble press conferences, but I suppose we'll all have to toss a rugby ball no, around at the end. I was about to say, no one will raise their hand and be called upon. We'll all just shout at each shout. other. Shout. Yeah, well, we, yeah. I... <laughs> hey, Bishop. Um, the guy uh, in the tallest hat will get noticed. I know that. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, we have decided that it is appropriate, because we have not been noticed when raising our hands in the past, to... Uh, we had decided that it was appropriate to wear cowboy hats at, press, at the press conferences to ensure that we would be seen, um, or I should say Western-style hats, and we're all prepped for that, but I don't know how that will play out in the media scrums. We've got no, there are no press conferences. No sooner did we come up with a plan to get recognized at the press conferences, they canceled all the press conferences. They killed the press conference because of our hats. I would no, hate because to think I had they... heard months ago that they were going to kill the press conference, but maybe. Anyway, what we can do now, though, at the media scrums is figure out a way to tuck our press credentials into our hats. Oh yes, yeah, and then yes. If we're going to be at a gaggle surrounding bishops just shouting questions, I – yes. Am I going to shout them all in an affected 1940s double-time accent? Unquestionably. Am I going to try to use weird 1940s jargon in jargon? my question? Yeah, yeah unquestionably. You yeah, you are. Oh, boy. I'm going to love it. But I'm also going to try to get some real answers, you know, so again, one has one must balance these things. Yeah. The thing about the press conferences, the reason I don't mind that they killed them is because almost nobody ever said anything, ever. And I think a lot of people complained about that. I know that um, a lot of members of the media, both Catholic and secular, have complained in the in the past and certainly were discontented at the last bishop's meeting that questions were asked and basically it's like 10 minutes of ice skating and then another question gets asked and another 10 minutes of ice skating. So one hopes that perhaps this press scrum format will allow for more honest and candid answers. We shall see. We will see. Hey, Bishop, where's your moxie? Oh, Lord. Okay, so those are some structural changes, I suppose. Um, substantively, what's happening? The bishops are going to elect a new uh, president, vice, pre- vice president, potentially secretary, um, and some committee chairman. 
I will in my newsletter on Tuesday break down who I think is going to be elected to all those things. There's going to be some voting on liturgical stuff. Um, and then the bishops will talk about their budget, uh, which I hope we'll be able to break down a little bit. Then they're going to have a conversation about faithful citizenship. They're a long document on guidance for the election. They're going to have like a presentation on walking with moms in need, which is a very actually cool and fruitful initiative for sort of localized support to pregnant women that is doing very many cool things in very many places. They're going to have a presentation on that. There's going to be kind of canned presentations on World Youth Day. Probably there will be a, a presentation on the Synod on Synodality. I, my guess was is that there won't be much public discussion about it. The discussion will happen on that in executive session. There's going to be a lot of talk about the Eucharistic revival. There's going to be talk about the Eucharistic revival. I'm told – I just got an email this morning telling me that there's going to be a press scrum about the Eucharistic revival. And I'm told yeah. that there will be a big – something big to be announced during that scrum. Uh, so we shall see. Uh, what it is. Um, there's gonna, So there's going to be a fair number of canned presentations. Honestly, with a day and a half, a lot of it is going to be like the speech of the Nuncio and other such things. But um, in the executive session, it's my expectation that the bishops are going to vote for delegates to the um, 2023 fall session of the Synod on Synodality, uh, the bishops. So they have the continental session coming up, but it's my expectation that they're going to vote on delegates for the 2023 Synod on Synodality session and i wonder ed do you have um do you have thoughts about who they might i have some thoughts about who they might pick for that who are some front runners but i'd love to hear if you have thoughts about that as well i have been thinking about this and i i'm not sure because the my my knee-jerk reaction is the obvious pool to draw from are the 10 guys who have been nominated to run for president vice president but i don't know that that's necessarily true I I I've been turning over my head, and honestly, I'm not sure. I okay, so really am not sure. Here's some things that I think. So first of all, let's say that um, Supich, McElroy, Tobin are probably not contenders to be elected to the thing for two reasons, uh, and one of which is that they probably at least one, if not more of them, will probably be appointed ad personam by the Pope to attend the thing. And I suspect uh, for sure Cardinal Tobin will be there uh, ad personam. I mean, he was on the drafting committee for the yeah. mm-hmm. this last synodal document. So I'm sure he will be there. And I wouldn't be surprised if Supacher McElroy w- was invited to it. And McElroy especially did a very, you know, he contracted the University of San Diego to do all kinds of interesting, like, analysis of the data that he got and to develop a scheme mm-hmm. for consultative consulting and things like that. So McElroy kind of got into this, and I wouldn't be surprised if that led to um, uh, his his being appointed ad personam. So let's say... Uh, so here's this here's the synod team, which I think probably before the bishops vote on who should be sent to the thing, this will be mentioned. Bishop Dan Flores, who's the chairman of the Committee on Doctrine, was also the chair of the the bishop's synod team and has been the point man on the synod for the U.S. It seems to me obvious that he would be voted to do to go to the synod on synod. I, I would think so. The, here's the rest. Bishop Betancourt, of Hart, an auxiliary of Hartford. Uh, Bishop Stowe, the Bishop of Lexington, Kentucky, Bishop Joe Tyson, the Bishop of Yakima, Washington, Bishop Waskoviak, Wachowiak, I've never said that right, the Bishop of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Bishop Zincula, the Bishop of Davenport, Iowa. Um, and they were kind of representatives of some of the USCCB regions. That's how they ended up on the Synod team. But it seems uh-huh. to me that those guys, there's a way in which their institutional affiliation might be kind of um, something which might encourage their election, but... I just don't see sort of Stowe or Tyson, for that matter, being seen as being aligned with the body of the bishops. Maybe Wachowiak. The, the other guys are somewhat low profile in the conference. But um, if I think if Flores is really saying these guys worked really hard on it, it's possible. A, a, another guy who I think actually is a possible election to the synod um, on synodality as a kind of representative. There are a few things I've thought. One, 
you know, the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis had a was having a diocesan synod when the synod yeah. synodality kicked off. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, Archbishop Hebda has like said a lot about the synodal process and has this experience of having had a diocesan synod. And he's respected, also a canon I think lawyer. He's a canon lawyer. And I think he's respected as being sort of theological, but like personally moderate in the way that he talks about things and, and probably perceived to be theologically aligned with most of the bishops. I would not be surprised if Hebda is a kind of dark horse in there. The Diocese of Dallas, Texas was having a synod. When this started, Bishop Burns, I think, is regarded as someone who did the process uh, well and would be regarded, I think, as um, he has conference experience. He's kind of been around a lot of conference committees and I think would be regarded by a certain cadre of bishops in the conference as not as outspoken as some, but kind of center leftish in a way, center leftish in a way that might be that, that sort of bishops towards the lefter side of the conference, for lack of a better term, the concilium side of the conference to probably put it better, might find appealing. And he's kind of folksy. And, and, and so I think I wouldn't be surprised if Bishop Burns having done a synod might garner a little attention for this. I don't know. That'd be, I wonder, I'd have to go back and check who the bishops were who have gone uh, for the USCCB to previous Roman synodal sessions. I think yeah. they, there might emerge, that might turn out to be a premium quality, mm-hmm. you know, knowing how a, a synod plays out in Rome and being able to, you know, arrive there with some sort of sense of, what to expect, how to how to make sure that you get heard, that sort of thing. Well, that's I actually think... where I was going because so oh, okay. the guys the guys who went to the I'm glad we're on the same page and the guys who went to the youth synod. So the the, the lesson was the Pan Amazonian synod, and the only Americans were the um, the ones who were personally appointed. I think McElroy, I, I, right? Because that was a regional thing; it wasn't. Yeah, a... yeah, yeah. Um, so the guys who went to the youth synod in 2018. Um, by either election or appointment. So Tobin was appointed, and then Donardo, Gomez, Chapu, Caggiano, and Barron were elected. Donardo, Gomez, Chapu, Caggiano, and Barron. Chapu's retired. Gomez, Donardo, you know, I think a lot of people respect, but is not in uh, great health. You know, Donardo and Gomez, though, were the two immediate past presidents of the conference. So that's part of what I think was the, was their election there. So you might think if there's a following there, Gomez as a past president might be might be elected, um, you know, as an outgoing president. Caggiano doing all this catechesis stuff, I really do think, you know, he has this catechesis institute happening at the bishops meeting right now that a lot of people are speaking highly of. That's a possibility again. Barron, you know, is Barron. Everybody knows Barron. Would he be doing TikTok videos from the synodal floor in Rome? Because that would be, <laughs> that'd be a trip. <laughs> I think, man, there's a set of uh, jokes to be made about the CCP. That wasn't a joke. I'm saying no, he's, I know he's the it's new not media joke, bishop. But there's a set of jokes to be made. He is the new media bishop. There's a set of jokes to be made about the CCP distributing a, a, a TikTok specific, you know, specific phone to each member. <laughs> oh yeah, but, yeah. Okay, so They'll get it uh, along with a copy of whatever book is banned at this. Yeah. So Baron wouldn't surprise me. Caggiano wouldn't surprise me. Gomez, I think, is strong possibility. So it could be Flores, Gomez, and one other. Uh, I don't know how many they elect. Maybe they elect five. Um, and this is only just what I, I have heard that the bishops will elect them at this time, and it seems the time that they would have to do it. But I, I couldn't um, definitively yeah. confirm it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will see. We will see. Okay. Then I think the bishops, you know, the bishops are not going to talk in executive session about the di- – well, they're not going to vote consultatively about the merger process of the Diocese of Steubenville, Ohio. But it might well come up because, of you know, there has been a lot of to-do about it, and it was originally on the agenda. We have heard but not confirmed the prospect that the bishops will vote consultatively on the uh, the notion of elevating um, the Diocese of Las Vegas, 
Nevada to become a metropolitan seat, to become the Archdiocese of Las Vegas, Nevada, with um, Reno and Salt Lake City. We've heard this from a bunch of places now with the prospect of Reno and, and Salt Lake City as suffering seas, but we, can't, we have not confirmed that, so it's just what we've heard. But it's possible that other mergers will be talked about too. I mean, we have said for a while, and we know it's true, that you know there are, there's a prospect of other dioceses being merged, so that's... There is there is no reason to believe that the church will not do and will not have to do, or at least feel it has to do with diocese, what it has been doing with parishes for the last thirty years. Yeah, that's right. The thing about Steubenville, I wouldn't mind talking about that for a minute. Um, you know, we're, we're, we've been recording for quite some time now, JD. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about Steubenville um, is, uh, I don't know. You know, we we started reporting on the we we broke the story of the merger of the diocese of Steubenville and then reported on priests of the diocese really pushing back on on the notion of the merger and arguing that their diocese has a lot of financial viability and good vocations numbers per Catholic and the field is ripe for the harvest. And many many priests of Steubenville were very candid in saying that they think what Steubenville needs is new leadership. They were not shy about saying that. And in fact, Bishop Monforton said he knows that many of his priests think it that 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 that, that the diocese needs a new sheriff in town. In his words. But I think what Steubenville sort of proved, the, putting it on the agenda and then pulling it off the agenda, is the importance of consultation in this process, where the priests really got traction with, I think, with, the, with a broader body of bishops in the United States and support for their motion was not, hey, we think the bishop thinks the diocese is not viable and, and we think it is. Um, but instead, they got traction on the idea that um, we were not consulted at all, which Bishop Monforton conceded and um and so i think well they, they were it, it was a double secret consultation he they said they were consulted they were but he didn't tell them that what he was consulting them about right so yes yeah. i consulted you but i didn't tell you i was consulting you right but they got traction on the idea that a major decision like this in the life of the church you can't suppress a parish without all kinds of consultations how could you possibly suppress a diocese even though it's not written in the law that they got traction on the idea that this is clearly contrary to the note to that to the way that law and administrative law works in the church and they got a lot of sympathy for that so the reason I think Steubenville might still be discussed is because I, I wonder if there will be conversation about the importance, the lessons learned, again, in executive session there. In public session, when the bishops talk about faithful citizenship, you know, there are going to be some bishops, there might be a sort of repeat of the abortion is not a preeminent priority kind of conversation that bishops have had in the past. Well, is Many, it still the preeminent priority is is, a, is an open question, because if it's now no longer the national issue, it is a series of of local issues i mean the, the abortion yeah, but I mean, preeminent different local different, issues right i mean uh, no, ending but, legal but there's a difference between a preeminent local issue and a preeminent national issue ending abortion was the preeminent national issue now how that plays out at the local level is very very different in places Although where I abortion th- is heavily restricted it's about supporting mothers it's about supporting families it's a, it's a completely different kind of engagement than trying to end legal abortion although i think shooting. bishops i think most of the conversation about abortion very honestly will focus on Okay, so let's say most likely scenario, as I read the tea leaves, most likely scenario is that by the time the meeting happens, the Republicans will have been demonstrated to have narrowly taken the House and the prospect will be either 51-49 for Republicans on the Senate or 50-50 depending on what happens with Georgia. Because let's say Nevada is going to go to the Republicans and Arizona is going to go to the Democrats. Let's say, right? okay. I'll be honest so, with you. I don't know hardly anything that happened in the midterms. Okay. I was out of town. <laughs> you were in Rome. And- Three people asked me while I was, you know, at this thing on Tuesday. They said, "You know, oh, it's, you know, you you made the tr- you made the trip all the way for this." I said, "Of course I did. This is Vatican finances. This is my jam, baby." Yeah. Um, and you know, they said, "But yeah, but this is like election day, aren't you? You know, you tearing <laughs> away for something." I said, "I would gladly get a plane eight hours away from the U.S. election 
for much less than this. So I have no <laughs> idea what happened. I don't okay. care. I, what, the point I want to the point I, I the point I want to make is I brought you up to speed. I think the Republicans yes. will probably have narrowly taken back the House, and it'll be fifty. After by the time of the end of the Georgia runoff, it'll be either fifty-one, forty-nine Republicans or fifty-fifty. Okay, so but I do think there will be a lot of conversation about you know the possibility of codifying um, legal protection for abortion into federal law. The question I think that's most interesting is I think that in addition to that substantive conversation, there will be a bunch of bishops who say no one is listening to faithful citizenship, and do we need a different way to do it? And that, to my mind, goes back to that COA study about, you know, we know what priests, the fewer than 25% of priests say they trust the body of bishops. We don't know what the numbers are on laity there, but it seems to me that if the conversation is just about what should we say and not how should we say it and how might it actually form people in their consciences, the boat has been missed on on that. I, I don't know what, I, I would precisely what to that. expect, but that's what I think. Okay. We'll talk much more about this, obviously, at our live show, Todd Connors, next week, 7 o'clock um, in Baltimore. Wednesday. Wednesday the 16th, and then we'll have much more in our newsletters and lots of reporting next week. And listen, honestly, if you think reporting, serious, intelligent, cogent reporting on the U.S. Bishops' Conference and the finances of the Holy See and the efforts to reform the rule of law and the life of the church matters, do us a favor and become a subscriber to uh, The Pillar. Go to PillarCatholic.com and hit subscribe. That's the way that we make the stuff happen. And you're a vital part of that, and we're grateful for you. But be a part of our team because— um, because you like us and because our team aims at loving the church and loving it well through our work in journalism. Get me out of my mom's basement, people. <laughs> the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate the Great Oliveira. We will be back next week at our live show, Wednesday, the 16th, Todd Connors Bar, 7 p.m. Be there or don't.